Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, well, it is 6.35, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, I want to pray for us, and then we'll jump into it. All right, so let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you, God, that we get to celebrate uh, the fact that he is alive. And Father, uh, your power that you work through your Holy Spirit, uh, God, to continue to to redeem and renew and restore. Father, we pray that um, this week would be just a helpful reminder to us, Lord, that there was a great cost to the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, but also a great beauty and glory that was revealed in your in your Son, Jesus. And that continues to help us to come into a relationship with you uh, that ultimately continues to do away with all sin, but also allows us to truly enjoy you forever, God. Uh, Father, we pray for our study tonight. We pray that it would continue to be beneficial, uh, that you would give me words to speak to help bring understanding and clarity to really just complex things. And Father, again, we're thankful God, that you don't make it so easy, God, that we think that we could truly begin to fathom you. We can't. And yet you give us little bits, tastes, Father, of, of who you are, uh, so that we can at least know you sufficiently enough to worship you. And Father, we pray that every single day is one where that can begin to take place. Lord, we love you, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, a couple things. Um, I'm going to do a little recap as usual, and then we'll jump into Daniel 11. So, uh, first things first, though, I did want to ask, how many of you guys feel like you have a better understanding of Daniel now than you did at the beginning of the class, just so I know whether I'm helping or not? Most of you do. Okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, Well, this has been something I've really enjoyed doing. I can't believe we have one more week left after this, so next week is our final week. And we'll be wrapping up with chapter 12. It's a short chapter. And so in addition to wrapping up chapter 12, um, we will also, uh, really what I want to do as well is just kind of um, review, not in a very detailed way, but kind of review some major themes that Daniel has been touching on, like the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, uh, the, this kingdom that God has established and that has called us to be a separate kingdom from the world that we're currently living in. And so um, I'm excited for that, to be able to do that with you together. But today we have chapter 11, which is a pretty big chapter. It's got lots of, I think it's 46 verses, I think, uh, something like that. But uh, it kind of leads into the end of this prophecy. So if you guys remember 10, 11, 12, these are all part of the same event, the same scene. And so uh, chapter 11 is kind of... The, almost the, the conflict, the tension, the warfare that goes on within. And chapter 12 is, is uh, the hope of it all. So I'm excited to get to, to that with you guys. And thanks for sticking around with me this long. 12 weeks. Uh, this is our 12th week, I think. Next week is 13. So um, it's, been, it's been fun. So just a quick review of chapter 9, 10. We won't do chapter 9 too much, but uh, just to, as a reminder, chapter 9... Uh, we talked about how that those dates played out, and really what we came to the conclusion of at the end of the day was that God's in control, God has a plan, and God will carry it out. Um, and so when we get into chapter 10, what we begin to see is Daniel, who's been fasting for three weeks, 
and all of a sudden, um, he's really he's waiting for God. All of a sudden, an angel comes finally to reveal to him uh, the, the word, which he wanted to reveal sooner, but he was being held back uh, by the, the prince of Persia. And so now he is here. He's going to reveal to David this uh, prophecy. And if you remember, it was so glorious that Daniel became incredibly weak. That when he saw what, what I think to be a manifestation of God, uh, Christ, before he became incarnate, he saw Christ in this way and just became weak and, and fell to the ground. Three times he had to be touched to be able not only to stand, but also to speak, to be able to even bear the words that the angel could say about the prophecy. Um, and so whether, that, whether it was this um, Jesus or whether it was an angel that was the one being held back, we don't know. Uh, my guess is it was probably an angel that enters into the story after that manifestation. Uh, but regardless of, of whatever is taking place there, uh, God's in control and He desires to use us. And now He's desiring to reveal Himself to Daniel. So one of the things that we talked about even uh, within that last chapter is we really what we got to see was a the veil kind of pulled back, the curtain pulled back, so we could look and see that there are spiritual realities happening all around us. And again, that even though heaven, um, we often associate with, with uh, the clouds or the sky or space, which is, which is true to some extent. Uh, I want to clarify that too. Heaven was used in a way to, to um, talk about the sky and space. And it was often thought that that's where God resided. But that's the point. That's the point. It's not that heaven exists there, but simply that heaven exists where the, the presence, the full presence of God dwells, which is why the temple became a place where heaven and earth met, where they collided. And so that's why it was so devastating. Every single time that temple was destroyed. But that's what we talked about. Now we're the temple. Now we are the place where heaven and earth collide. And now we are the place where the presence of God continues to work itself out to bring people into this continue to build the temple. That mountain imagery, really, that Daniel is using, that is expanding, expanding, expanding. That's what we're talking about here. So, um, going into chapter 11, I wanted to play a little game. Um, this kind of has something to do with what we're talking about tonight. It kind of doesn't. It's a, it's a little far of a reach, but I just think it's really interesting. So, I don't, have you guys ever seen the show Brain Games? Have you ever seen that? It's on Netflix. Uh, but it's kind of like a, it's a different, it's a show that basically goes through these different games and how your brain processes information. It's pretty interesting. Um, but there's a game that he plays that I think is pretty cool. So here's what we're going to do. This does take your concentration. It does take your ability to um, think quickly. Okay, so, so be aware of that. Follow me closely. Okay, I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. Um, but if not, hopefully the point still gets across. So one second, let me draw this up on the board. My son scribbled on this. I just now realized that. So it's good. All right. Can you all see that? Can you guys see it all right? Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you several prompts. And what I need you to do is just keep up with me. Keep track of what I'm asking you to do as we go through each one. And then at the end of it, there's going to be a specific result. Okay. So here's what I want to do first. I want you, um, 
and if this is easier, you can write it down as well. Uh, but you can write down or keep it in your head. Don't say it out loud. I want you to pick um, one of these letters. I just want you to pick one letter. Okay? Now, the number corresponding with that letter, I want you to multiply that by 9. So I'll give you a second to multiply that by 9. Okay? Raise your hand when you're done, so I know you're done. Multiply that by 9. Okay. So, you multiply that by 9. Now, if there are two digits in that, the, the, the result of that multiplication, I want you to add those together. Okay. And I want you to subtract 5 from that. And that should lead you to one of these letters. And now I want you to think of the first country that comes to your mind that starts with the letter that corresponds to that number that you got. Okay? First country that comes to your mind. Does that just go with the single? What about the single if you have single digit number? Uh, you can, so use the, so one would be the case, or one times nine, so use the zero plus nine. It would just be, yeah. And then that will, so think of the first country that comes to your mind that corresponds with that last result of that number. Think of the first animal that comes to your mind that starts with the last letter of that country. Okay? Now think of the first color that comes to your mind that starts with the letter of the last of the last letter of the animal that you thought of. Okay? You guys all got it? No, what's my animal? You guys all got it? Okay. Let me tell me if this is what you came up with. Is that what you came up with? Yeah. An orange kangaroo from Denmark? Yeah. All right, who of you didn't come up with that? Raise your hand if you didn't come up with that. A couple of you, what'd you do? What'd you get? I had one. What's that? I had one. Oh, which one was it? Okay, okay. What else, did, well, who else, what else did you guys get? Anybody else get something different? I got the Dominican, and I can't think of an animal that starts with an N. <laughs> yes, that's good, yeah. Well, anybody else get something different? So here's how, this, here's how this works. I'll explain it to you. First off, 9 is one of those numbers you can add it together and subtract it and it kind of ends in the same thing. So I was leading you, regardless of whether you knew it or not, I was leading you to the number 4. And I was leading you to the first country that starts with the letter D. Now, there are only three countries, I believe, that start, or four countries, actually, that start with the letter D. Denmark, Djibouti, which I don't know why none of you thought of that. Uh, Denmark, Djibouti, Dominican Republic, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, so those are the only four. Denmark is the one that comes to most of our minds. Um, obviously, if you've been to the, uh, the, uh, those other countries, you know, sometimes those come in. But I think what the, they say is like 85% of people will come up with this result. Um, and you could have said koala as well. That's another popular animal that people come to. And then I don't know what color. Uh, Nate said amber. Uh, if you see, Nate's our tech guy back there, if you guys have met him yet. But he came up with um, amber. It was a koala and amber. So he's a rare 15 percenter. But um, anyways... What we're talking about tonight is prophecy. We're continuing the thing. So how did I know? See how I made the connection there. It doesn't really matter, but it does. Anyways, it's just fun. All right. So uh, tonight we're going to get into Daniel 11. And really, this is an immense prophecy. One of the biggest that will happen throughout Scripture. 
that Daniel somehow foresaw the end result of all that God was going to do. Because it was revealed to him by an angel. This angel came to him after three weeks of fasting. Where he didn't not he, he didn't just abstain from food, he also abstained from any way to take care of himself, right? He didn't put on lotions or anything like that. He was devoted toward hearing from God, and God finally spoke. And this is the vision that he has for him. Okay? So what we're gonna do is I'm going to this is um, kind of complex in some ways. Um, not because it's it's uh, it's complex to understand, but because there is so much history going on that I want to make sure you guys are trekking with me as we go because um, you can write this down. There is a gap between 486-ish, this is probably what it is, 486 B.C. all the way to 164 B.C. That's the timeline just in this chapter. Okay, so that's a big, some big jumps that we're making here. So I'm going to try to make this hopefully as explanatory as possible. If you guys see the sheet that I gave you, uh, front and back, or stuff on front and back. Um, hopefully that's helpful for you as well. And what, that, what I did there was um, I went through, and I, for each, basically when a new character comes in, I tried to put them down. Now, not every character is in there, but at least the main ones. So you can begin to see how, now looking back at this, history has conformed to what we now have in chapter 11, which is pretty amazing. Um, so... I'm going to start at verse 2 and then kind of unpack it as we go. So um, especially because of how big this is, I'm going to, I'm going to get going because we got a lot to cover. And in addition to that, the end of this chapter is the most complex part. So I'll start with verse 2. Let's read it together. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So he he kind of starts off in in verse 2. Notice he says, I will show you the truth. And this is, it's kind of funny that he's even mentioning this at all, because obviously this is an angel coming to Daniel and telling him something. You would assume that he wouldn't need to. But some people think it's kind of a reaffirmation of the fact that what he is telling him is from God, but also it's part of the book of truth that we read about at the end of chapter 10. And so he begins to reference this to remind Daniel that what he has to say is a decree from God. This will happen. All that we're about to unpack is the providence of God unfolding in history. Okay? So he goes on. There's going to be three kings. Now, there are two different views about who these three kings are, but we are certain we're, that it's, it's Persia, uh, the, the empire of Persia. And here are the two views. So the first one, the, the first four kings that it could be are Cyrus, Cambyses, Darius, and Xerxes. Okay? Now, some people don't like that view quite as much because... Um, Cyrus is already king at this point, so it seems weird that he'll say three will arise and a fourth will be the richest if Cyrus is already king at this point. And so the next view is to see Cambyses, Smyrdas, which if you look back at your Achaemenid dynasty, you'll notice you don't have a Smyrdas on there, um, but actually Bardia, which is 
the guy that reigned for like you know a year or something like that, it was a couple months. Um, that is the same guy, same name. So you can you can put Bardia if you want. That's B A R D I Y A. That will line up with that dynasty a little bit extra. The third would be Darius, and the fourth Xerxes. So kind of regardless of where you land on there, I mean, there's several other views as well. I'll just say that, but they are, they're more minority. And at the end of the day, we're not 100% sure which kings are being referred to within the Persian Empire. We're just sure that that's what's being referred to. And Xerxes is considered, was considered to be someone who was a very wealthy Persian, but also one that always was constantly stirring up troubles against, uh, trouble against the Greeks. Okay, which is where we'll go next when we see Alexander the Great come again. And we've kind of talked about a little bit of this even um, with uh, chapter 8, you know, when we're talking about the, the goat and the ram um, and, and how those things begin to shift. And there's that horn and it breaks and there's four horns. We're, kind of, we're going to kind of see a similar pattern that's taking place here. So the fourth king is probably Xerxes. And then a mighty king rises in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise. And we believe this to be Alexander the Great. Again, he reigned from 336 to 323. He had two sons, but neither of them came to power. They were both killed. And so over the next 20-ish years, there was a power struggle. So already you can see, if Xerxes, his reign was from 486 to 465... Now we're already to Alexander, who began to reign in 336. So we've already made a pretty big jump. A pretty big jump. Um, Now, what happens is, over the next 20 years, which if you'll notice as well, I think it says... um, Yeah, he says, uh, as soon as he arisen, his kingdom was broken. His kingdom didn't last very long, although it expanded rapidly. We know that Alexander the Great was the one of the most single-handedly brilliant generals of all time that ultimately conquered an immense amount of land. Uh, so that's, And it was only within a period of about six years. And then he died of a fever, unfortunately, for him. Uh, so his kingdom was broken and it was divided toward the four winds. We believe this to be a directly indicative of the four empires that ended up taking control of the Greek empire. Now, if you guys remember from your map even, I gave you a map of how those territories were broken out. And they were broken out and from Cassander's, um, Cassander's region, uh, Lysicomus region, Suetonius region, and the Ptolemaic region. Okay, those are the four generals that basically ended up winning after this 20 years was up and coming to a peace agreement so that they could all have their empires where they were. Okay, so after that... Um, after these distinct kingdoms begin to arise, that's kind of where verse 4 leaves off. So we'll go ahead and jump into verse 5. And this is kind of where the story begins to take shape. So what Daniel has done, he's given us a historical context. And what I think he's doing, really, in a lot of ways, is what he's showing you is the status of Israel and its possessions and its land all within this historical retelling, okay? So what he said is, there are these Persian kings, and then there was a mighty Greek one, and then it got split up into four, and now this is where we're at. So are you guys all checking with me so far? With me? Okay. So when we get to verse 5, he starts to make things a little more detailed. He says, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. Now, out of all of the research that I've done for this, almost all sources are in agreement on pretty much everything up until verse 36. Okay? 
so this is this is historical historical um, really the historical sources that we've had and looked back at has validated a lot of these claims. And really, what we've what we've simply done is put the names of the people on these kings of the south and north that we believe fulfill the requirements of what it seems Daniel is describing. Okay, so this is what he says first off. The king of the south uh, is most likely a Ptolemaic king by the name of Soter. And I'm going to write this on the board too because this will be helpful. Everybody see that? Cool. So uh, again, sorry for my bad handwriting. All right, but what it says is it's creating a division. So we have four kingdoms. We have four empires, right? Well, actually, it's the same empire. It's the Greek Empire, but it's four kings who have dispersed four different regions, right? But the two that we're going to be dealing with this entire passage, the two uh, kingdoms within this empire, are the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid. The Ptolemaic is going to represent the Southern Empire. When you see King of the South, we're talking about the Ptolemaic dynasty. Okay. When you see the Seleucid, we're talking about um, the North, or I should say, when you see King of the North, we're talking about the Seleucid dynasty. Okay. So these are essentially generals who, again, after 20 years of fighting, came to be able to grab power of these areas, and now. We're going to move through who these kings were. So the first one, I won't write all these names on the board just because it'll take me a while to write them all. Um, but I do have them on that paper for you if that's helpful. And you can write them down as well as I talk about them. So the first king of the Ptolemaic dynasty, his name is Soter, S-O-T-E-R. And he ruled from 322 to 305. I'm not going to go through all those details because you would die of boredom. So here's the point. He became king of, uh, he was the first king, Ptolemy the first. Uh, he was the first king of the Ptolemaic dynasty. And the prince that we believe that is ta- being talked about here is Seleucus Nicator, who is the first king of the uh, Seleucid dynasty. Uh, okay, And the reason that they were getting along pretty well is, first off, they had fought together already. But there was a fifth general that was involved in this entire dispute by the name of Antigonus. Well, Antigonus lost, but it wasn't he didn't lose before he actually took away Se- the Seleucid region. And ultimately, um, Nicator was able to grab that back from Antigonus with the help of, um, of the Ptolemaic dynasty of Soter. Okay? So ultimately, what happens is Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy I helps um, Nicator grab this, this, uh, this area back, and ultimately that would begin to, to start the fighting. Now, um, quickly after, we'll begin to see how these two sides very rapidly go from being cordial to enemies. And that's what we jump to in verse 6. 
It said, after some years, so it's been some years. In fact, it's probably been about 35 years. Okay, When it says some years, it's probably talking about 35 years. It says, uh, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Okay, so now we've gone from Soter and Nicator to two new kings. Two new kings, okay? So what Daniel has done first is just simply established what those two kings represented with the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. And those are the kings of the south, king of the north. Now he's going to go more into the details. And what he's doing, he's trying to set up for us how we got to Antiochus Epiphanes, how we got to Antiochus IV, which we've talked about several times. Uh, and we'll talk about, obviously, more today. But the idea is, he's going to show us how it got there. And Antiochus is specifically from that Seleucid dynasty. So eventually, as we begin to see this narrative unfold, we'll begin to see the king of the north begin to continually conquer the king of the south. Okay. So, first things first, though. Um, Verse 6, there's an agreement that takes place. Now, these kings, the first one is Ptolemy, and his name is Philadelphus. So, Philadelphia, think of that, but Philadelphus. Philadelphus. And he is Ptolemy II. Ptolemy II. Um, His name is Philadelphus. The next king of the Seleucid Empire is Antiochus II, whose name, he goes by Theos, which is T-H-E-O-S. Okay? So the story goes with Antiochus II, that he was the grandson, actually, of Seleucus Nicator. He's the grandson. And what he does is he goes um, to Ptolemy and tries to essentially create some bonding there of uh, the kingdom. And he gives him, or well, he, he marries, I should say, uh, he marries uh, Berenice, which is the daughter of Philadelphus, Berenice. And this is the woman that's being talked about um, that, we'll, that we'll begin to see. So Berenice is the woman that ultimately they use the daughter of the king that they use to make this alliance, Berenice. And Berenice, um, while she is, I'm sure, a great gal, uh, at the end of the day, the king ends up not liking her anymore. And uh, the king, Antiochus II, being Antiochus II. Now, Antiochus II is actually already married. He's married to a woman named Laodice, and he has two sons with her. Now, when, Berenice, when he marries Berenice, um, they begin to basically create that alliance. Uh, but it's not too long later that Philadelphus dies. Two years later, Philadelphus dies. When Philadelphus dies, Antiochus II divorces uh, Berenice and goes back with Laodice. Okay? Now the plot thickens. Okay? So... Laodice is not super happy about the fact that her husband decided to marry this other chick. And so she decides uh, that she's actually going to kill uh, Berenice. Um, well, not Berenice, I'm sorry. Well, actually, yeah, she does end up killing Berenice. Berenice and um, Antiochus II. And so she does that. She poisons them and they die. Now, um, when she does this, she ultimately creates a wrathful king of the, of the south. So when the south hears about this, basically what he begins to see is, okay, well, I'm not very happy about the fact that, basically it's his mom, my mom just died, right? Or actually, I'm sorry, it's his sister. 
Um, and his name, his, the, the name of the guy who is his sister is Ptolemy Evergetus. This is kind of a hard name to um, spell and, or say in English, but I'm going to spell it for you so you can kind of get the gist of it. It's E-U-E-R-G-E-T-E-S. So this is the brother of Berenice. Berenice, he hears that his sister has been killed. He goes to war with the king of the south. Okay? Now, this is kind of what we begin to see in verse 6. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And so, again, when, when Philadelphus died, Antiochus II divorces Berenice. And in doing so, um, Laodice, uh kills her, kills Antiochus II, and ultimately um, that what happens at that point is uh, uh, Everetus comes in, Everegetus comes in and, and kills um, <laughs> Laodice. And it leaves a very young king. It leaves a very young king. And so we'll get to that in the next verse. So, verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, we're talking about Berenice, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So again, we're seeing the story unfold. This is the from her roots, the ancestry of Berenice. This is, is talking about Ptolemy of Everagetus. And he comes against the army of the king of the north, and he prevails against them. Okay? Verse 8, He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metals and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So he has success, and when he does have success, he kind of backs off the king of the north. He's not interested in just demolishing them. We don't know exactly why. Maybe he didn't have the resources. Maybe he thought that was enough. Uh, But he stops. In verse 9, he goes on, Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So at this point, Seleucus Callinicus, this is the son of Laodice. So these crazy Greek names. Um, when that happens, he ultimately grows up. He's a kid, but he grows up and he's able to kind of fight back a bit. Verse 10 goes on. His sons shall wage war, so the sons, uh, being Seleucus Callinicus, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Now, one of these sons is Antiochus the Great. And when Seleucus dies, Antiochus the Great is going to take over. Okay, Antiochus, this is also Antiochus the Third. So I told you, this is a lot of historical details, but it's kind of, this is the gist of, of what's going on in chapter 11. Seleucus died in battle, and Antiochus becomes king, and in verse 11 it goes on. Then the king of the south, again we're talking about the Ptolemaics, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. Um, So, when it's given into his hand... Uh, basically, it shows that this king of the south, which is Antiochus the Great, is moved with rage and he fights back against the north. The one who stands in place, it says, uh, notice, and he shall raise a great multitude. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's not where we're at. Uh, the king of the south at this level, um, once, this, once we get to this point, is Ptolemy uh, Philopater. Ptolemy Philopater, which is Ptolemy the Fourth. Okay? So I'm going to move through this quickly. I can tell you guys are falling out. You're falling out. I'll move quickly. Uh, these are the details 
which makes sense of the passage, but if you guys can just believe that there are historical documents to to back all this up, then I'll move quickly. How about that? All right. So there's victory, there's fall, Paul, uh, Philippator wins, and we have clear evidence of this in the Battle of Raphia. Uh, the king of the north comes, who is Antiochus, uh, and he basically marches against Egypt and, and essentially gets his people back. So, verse 14, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south. Many shall rise against that king of the south, again the Ptolemaic, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north, the Seleucids, shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with the destruction in his hand. Okay, this is where the story begins to get into Israel. Because notice what it says there in verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with the destruction in his hand. Now here's what you need to know. The glorious land is Israel. Okay? And the Seleucids initially had control of Palestine. They had control of the glorious land of Israel. Now, what happens is they end up losing it to the Ptolemaics because the Ptolemaics just kind of end up moving into that space and they, don't, they fight over a little bit, but not much. Well, this is the first time that the Seleucids have got it back. Now it's theirs. It's their possession. And this is meaningful because the next king that we're going to see is that of Antiochus IV. Now, when he comes into play, that's going to make a difference because that's his land. And he has it set on his heart that he's going to make the whole world Greek. He's going to Hellenize everything to adopt Greek culture, right? We've talked about that. So, um, we'll go on in verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So this is talking about an agreement that happened between Antiochus the Great, or Antiochus III, and he gave his daughter Cleopatra, at this point, to uh, Ptolemy Epiphanes. But he thought it was going to help him, that his daughter would help him spy out what was going on, but it ended up, she ended up liking Ptolemy Epiphany too much. So she ended up not helping him at all, which is what it goes on to say. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. It didn't work. Verse 18, Afterward he shall turn his face, face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So, Antiochus tries to capture um, more land. He tries to capture Egypt. What happens is ultimately he's thwarted. He goes back to his home and he ends up dying. The person who comes in his place is going to be Seleucus Philopater. He's the one that stands in his place and he sends an exactor. That's somebody who basically goes around and they take money for the kingdom. It's a tax. Basically, they're taking taxes. And that person is by the name of Heliodorus. Heliodorus is the person that ultimately would end up killing Seleucus Philopater, we think, by poisoning him. And that would lead to Antiochus IV coming into power. So this is where Antiochus IV comes into power, which is where we get to in verse 21. In verse 21 it says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person, that is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay? You guys all tracking with me? 
So let me just give a quick recap. Uh, that is a 30,000 foot view. Basically, there was a bunch of fighting between Greek kings to show how Antiochus IV comes to power. Verse 21 is now where we're at, where we're landing. Verse 21 is when Antiochus IV is directly being talked about. Okay? So, it says, A contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given because he didn't inherit the crown. He was not supposed to inherit the crown. It was Seleucus Philopater that was supposed to inherit the crown. But then he, he was killed, and Antiochus bought off a bunch of people. He was basically sweet-talked a bunch of people. And that's what it says. That he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by what? Flatteries. Flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. We don't know exactly who this prince of the covenant is. It could have been the high priest of Israel at the time. One of the things that is talked about, even as we talked about Judas Maccabee, is that there were lots of Israelites that were actually wanting Greek, uh, the Greek culture. That they wanted it to invade theirs and that they wanted to adopt it. And it was the faction that didn't want that, Judas the Maccabee and his family, that ended up revolting. And so what we think is this probably was, a, was one of the evil high priests that ultimately um, helped Antiochus at this point. So it could be him. It could also be um, another Ptolemaic king uh, that, that we know that Antiochus helped as well when there was some struggle. So it could be one of those people. But I'll go on. Um, in verse 25... Oh, wait. Did I, I didn't finish that. 23. And from that time, an alliance is made with him. He shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. So again, we don't know if that alliance was with the, the evil high priest. It very well could have been, because we know it happened. Or with the Ptolemaic king, because we know that happened as well. Um, verse 24. Without war, uh, or I'm sorry, that was made with him, and he shall become a strong people. But in verse 24, it says, Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Okay, so this contemptible person, it's Antiochus. These armies are are beginning to uh, be destroyed by his might, and he's making an alliance in a way that ultimately gives him a little bit of leeway to begin to have military prowess. Okay, verse 25 begins to take place. Let's read that. And he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south, the Ptolemaic kingdom, if you remember. So they were once friends, possibly, but not anymore. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for, and as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil." They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. That's an important thing to note as well. The end is yet to be at the time appointed. That's a phrase that's going to be repeated quite a bit throughout um, chapter 3. When I say quite a bit, I mean like three times. But that's significant, right? When it's something, a phrase is being repeated that many times in one chapter, there's something that Daniel is ultimately pointing us to. So it goes on in verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant. So even after Antiochus' victory, he's going to return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant, against Israel. Okay, And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Now, um, when we get into verse 29, it says, At the time appointed. So now we're starting to see a time that is appointed. He shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. So the last time he went into the south, last time he went into Egypt, he won. 
This time, not so much. That's what it's saying. It says, for ships of Kittim, which this is a specific reference um, to what many believe to be the Romans. The Romans at this time were sending ships um, specifically under the, um, the power... What's his name? Let me see in my notes here. Oh, uh, Papilius Lanus. He was the guy, the Roman general, essentially, that was intervening in this situation. And when Antiochus IV tries to invade Egypt, uh, tries to invade the Ptolemaics, because that's their, that's their empire, Rome is now on their side. And he will not be able to do so. In fact, what is said is that uh, this, this general, this Roman general, approaches Antiochus and he draws a circle around him. And he says, leave that circle and die, basically. And Antiochus is like, okay, I get the point. I'm going to go back home. We're good. So Antiochus goes back home, and he goes back home frustrated. So it says in verse 30, For the ships of Kittim, we believe that to be Rome, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged. Now he's embarrassed. He's humiliated. And he says, And take action against the Holy Covenant. So what does he do in his humiliation, in his, in his fear, in his anger? He reacts. He does so against Israel. He says, He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. All right. So again, he goes back to Egypt, um, and he gets to- basically the Romans say, "No, this ain't going to happen." He goes back, and now he starts to go against the, Isra- um, the Israelites. In verse thirty-one, he goes on: "Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple, the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering." That sounds familiar, right? And they end evening sacrifices, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Again, that sounds familiar, right? Chapter 9 sounds really familiar. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people, again, he's seducing them with flattery, those who violate the covenant. So what, what do we say? There are many Israelites who actually want Greek culture. They want to adopt it. And these are the people who are violating the covenant that he's able to seduce. He, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. This is the Maccabean Revolt now. We're talking about the Maccabean Revolt. In verse 33, it says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So even though Daniel begins to say the appointed time is near, that it's kind of beginning to take place, at the end here he says, but we're still waiting on the fullness thereof. We're still waiting on the fullness thereof. Okay, so again, we've kind of talked about Antiochus, what he has done. He tried to set up uh, a statue of the Olympian Zeus in the temple. He tried to force the Israelites to adopt Greek culture and said, If you do not, I will kill you. If you circumcise your children as a covenant act for your people, you will die. You and your child will die. And he tried to make people even sacrifice sacrifice a pig on the altar, the the most unclean animal uh, for the Israelites. Okay, so... We can begin to see the bad, the, the, the fact that this dude is a bad dude. Okay, and I think that we can begin to see why Daniel's writing this story for people to begin to anticipate and be able to look back and say, "Okay, God knew all of this from the beginning, and it does not mean the end of our lives. It does not mean the end of our lives." 
So here's what I want to do first is throughout the book of Daniel, I want to just try and st- take a step back if I can, because I think that ultimately that's a lot. Um, that's a lot of a lot of information, a lot of historical information. Um, so I guess this first, like, what questions can I answer about that part? Uh, what questions might you have about why why this framing is beginning to take place through you know two through thirty thirty five? Yes. I keep wondering, has Daniel seen this in this vision at all? And, you know, we keep reading that at the appointed time. Does he seem to, do you feel like he seems to know what the appointed time is? I wouldn't say that he necessarily knows what it is. But I would say that he knows that God has specifically orchestrated when it will be. And so for him, it's not necessarily that he knows the time. And actually, what I will say this too is that it's less of him telling us the vision than it is the angel telling him the vision. And he's writing down what he's being told. And so even when he begins to refer to the appointed time, it's not as if he's telling us that as much as the angel's telling him that. Because the angel knows. The angel's the messenger of God, you know, doing God's work. And he said, but the appointed time's not there yet. So that's a great question, though. Yeah. Anything else within this, this part? Are you confused? Do you feel like you're are you with me? Where you, you guys you guys feel raise your hand if you feel like this makes sense thus far. Okay, that's a pretty good amount. You said how can I quit what what where's the confusion? Well, I don't know why it's so important for us to know between the north and the south. What's the conclusion? Hmm. Uh, all these names and is that the countries we're talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, let me. So let me try and clarify that, and just to make sure, I, I really want you guys to ask as many questions as possible. You know, I'm not up here just so I can spout information. I want you guys to walk out of here knowing this book better and being being able to be encouraged by it. Um, and so, as much as I can, I want to try to answer as, as many questions as, for you as I can, especially while 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 I'm here. You know, and I may not know the answer, but I sure want to try. So. When it talks about the, the north and the south, what it's talking about specifically are these two kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. So if you think about it, um, even it, it really in terms of these are two separate kingdoms that are happening, but they're both a part of the Greek empire, if that makes sense. They're a result of it, of what Alexander the Great has done. And so when we get from Alexander the Great into this, this uh, distinction, this juxtaposition between just these two and the fighting that's happening within them. Why does this matter? It all matters because of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's the only reason it matters. And the reason it matters is because the Israelites are going to receive this book and be reading it at a time when they're going to remember when all hope seems lost that their God always knew this was going to take place and He always had a plan for it. And that when it does happen... Uh, there will still be a greater glory and goodness and, and truth. I mean, I love even what it says, you know, if you, if, you ended, if you saw what it says at the end of verse 35, and th- or 34, it's like you're going to stumble. You're going to need help. Uh, but part of this is so that you will be refined, purified, and made white. And I think that what Daniel is trying to do is, really on behalf of really what God is trying to do, is show his people that in the worst possible moments, that they will go through, He's still there. 
And this is why he has, Daniel has set up the first six chapters in the way he has. He is telling a story of every single part where it seemed like God should have never heard him at all. When they were in exile, because of the fact that they had sinned, that their sin had so separated them from God, that they were doing such despicable things that God had to use a pagan nation to enact justice upon them. Even then, God was still working for them. And when they get brought into exile... Uh, they go through all these trials, right? He's not going to eat the food. He's not going to bow before the idol. He's going, they're going to be thrown into the fire. They're going to be thrown into the lion's den. No matter what, God is working in those details. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, He can save our life, but even if He doesn't, He's still working in the details. And what Daniel wants us to see is the rise of this king, Antiochus, But actually what he wants us to see is in chapter 12, when even Antiochus, even if he brings us to death, there is resurrection. And we'll get to that next week. Uh, That's the hope part. This is the conflict part. The conflict is that there is always a kingdom set up against you. We are living in a nation that is not a Christian one. It may have at one time been founded on Christian principles, but that doesn't mean that it is a Christian nation. There is a distinction there. And we're seeing that a sway, a heavy sway from those principles to being what we forgot uh, that this nation really is, which is simply still an earthly one. And it doesn't mean that you know, we should reject it or rebel against it. Not at all. What, is, what does Paul say in Romans 13? And, and what does Peter say, right? To be obedient, to be submissive, to be cooperative, because what we want is to live a life of peace so that people may come to see that there is a greater kingdom of hope and peace and joy and love that's available for them right now. And that the kingdom that we're a part of will never end. That this is simply a, a blip in eternity, right? And so, ultimately, we're reminded of the fact that we are living in a kingdom that is not the one that we belong to. We belong to the one that is that giant mountain expanding that God broke. Uh, God broke every other kingdom with one simple rock and that rock has become something so much more gigantic. This is the hope that Daniel is trying to instill in his people. So when it's talking about these kings of the south, it is vague. And the reason it's vague is because Daniel doesn't know their names. He simply is saying something about the future, about the king of the south and the north, and that's all he has. You know, the only reason we know all this now is because we're looking at it in hindsight. And we're applying the historical data that we believe best fits this description. And ultimately what it's saying is when these things happen, I think Daniel's people, the people, that, the Israelites did it too, when they finally got to this point, and they read the book of Daniel, right? This is the part that's in Hebrew. This is the part that was for them. And they're saying, oh yeah, God is still for us, even in the details. God is still for us, even when there is an an evil tyrant forcing us to slay pigs on the altar, forcing us to flee into the mountains, killing our children because we're circumcising them to be faithful to our God. So that's a long answer, but I think one that provides, I hope, at least some helpful application for all of us, um, that regardless of the kingdom that we're in, of the event and the circumstance that we're in, God is in the details of it, and He's bringing about something better. So, hopefully that answers your question. (laughs) If not, I'm really sorry for rambling for so long. (laughs) Um, Any other questions? Yeah. You 
said this started 486 BC to 154 BC, this duration we're talking about here. When did the, the, the dream come about? Was it five, you said 530 BC when Daniel was started? So, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, we were sitting in about 500 when he's having this vision. Yes, that's a, gr- that's a great um, question. So he's saying that the timeline for this is 486, actually 164. 164. Yeah, and the vision for, is happening in the third year of Cyrus, which would have been 536 B.C. 536. 536. So really, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. That actually, this is um, an even bigger expanse of time than 486 to 164. The events themselves are 486 to 164, but Daniel is doing this from 536 all the way um, to, um, to 164. Yeah. Right, right. So 164 B.C. is the time when Antiochus Epiphany dies. So in all actuality, um, again, we're about to talk about this when we get to verse 36. In all actuality, it's actually further than that. Because when he, goes, when he talks about the resurrection, he's talking about the end. So really, we're talking about something further. But at least from what we know historically, we know for sure it's at least to 164 B.C. Um, but when we get to verse 36, that's where some things begin to change a little bit. Okay. But I wanted to set up that timeline even for us because when we get to verse 36, a new jump has happened. And I'll be honest with you, this is a really hard text um, to study right here uh, because when you're reading it naturally, it's, it's easy to apply this uh, verse 36 um, and on to Antiochus. Because um, just when you're reading it, that's the natural reading of it. But the problem is that these details, there's a couple of problems. The first one is that these details do not, do not match the historical details of Antiochus. So we can't take them as, the, as Antiochus. Um, now, that, that, that's meaningful for a couple of reasons. The first one is this. If this book really was being written in the 200s, how, or I'm sorry, the 100s, how would they have messed this up? How would they have begun to talk about Antiochus Epiphany in a way that they accidentally messed up? And even more than that, when they knew that they had messed up, why would they continue to add it to their scripture and believe that it was authoritative? And so again, this continues to, this actually affirms the fact that this was written, um, again, in, in, the six, in the 500s. Um, it actually affirms it was written in the 500s. So then we have to ask the question, okay, so who was this about? Who's verse 36 about? So now let's go ahead and jump into that. I'm going to read it for us. And the king shall do as he wills. This is verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. Now notice here that there is some sort of a break that's happening. First off, this king is not referred to by the king of the north or as the king of the south. Okay? So that's one element. The other element is this. That there seems to be a break after verse 34 and 35. Because what it says is, Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Okay, so there's almost that break there, just like there was the last time we read that. And it goes into verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. So this is not Antiochus anymore. This is someone else. Now, if you look at your, um, the paper I gave you that kind of has all the, all the kings, you'll notice I put on there, who is this king? Who is this king? That is the question. When we get to verse 36, who is this king? 
So let me read it. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. For he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall loathe with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. So there are several different ideas of who this king is. I'm going to give them to you. The first one is this. The first one is, is it's Antiochus Epiphany. Um, I don't think that that's the case. Most people don't think that that's the case. The only people who do think that's the case are those who um, don't believe that this was written in 500 B.C. The only people who think that this is Antiochus Epiphany still are the people who believe that this book was written um, basically after these events had happened and that it's basically fake prophecy. Again, I have an issue with that. Why would, they, why would it be so widespread in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Septuagint, in Theodosian? Uh, why, why would it be so widespread throughout the, the Israelites if it was something that they knew was fake or wrong? Right? It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Um, in addition to that, they, sure, they certainly would be able to know uh, that, they wouldn't have, that if, if it was fake, if they knew it was fake, that it would really not deserve to be in the canon at all, and that they wouldn't use it for hope at all. It wouldn't be hopeful at all. It would lose its meaning entirely. Um, So, again, I don't think it's Antiochus Epiphany, but some people do believe that. The other one is Constantine the Great. I don't think it's Constantine the Great either, but that's another idea, is that Constantine, if you guys remember, he ruled in Rome. He was the emperor in 300 A.D., and ultimately he was the person who um, legalized Christianity, and within that moment, everything changed for Christianity. It absolutely did. Um, it brought both pros and cons to, the, to um, Christianity. It brought pros because people weren't dying all the time anymore. Um, but it brought cons because the cost of discipleship was watered down. And people simply identified as Christians because they were, uh, they were a Roman and uh, I think that we kind of understand a little bit about that. That's kind of that's our context, I think, in a lot of ways. People identify as a Christian because they're American, even though they may not go to church. They may not have a relationship with Jesus. Their tradition is Christianity. So we see that, that water down. So people think that it's Constantine. I don't, really, I don't think it's Constantine. Um, but people do. Uh, the other one is, it could be the Roman Empire in general. We talked about that fourth beast being the Roman Empire. Um, so very well, it could be the Roman Empire. Some people also believe that it's Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Um, again, I think that these views, they have some evidence, but I think that they're probably, um, they're the least accepted on a consensus basis. I would say, by far, the consensus of, of, all, the, of all the research I've done is that everyone believes that this is the Antichrist. Almost everybody believes this is the Antichrist. And so, um, what do we mean by the Antichrist? That, then that becomes the question. So, a um, couple things within that, though. First off, if it is the Antichrist, what is the Antichrist? Is it the Antichrist um, in as the little horn from 7 and 8? Is it specifically a Jew that claims to be the Messiah? That's what some people think, that this could be the Messiah that sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped in the middle of the 70th week. It could also be the Pope. 
Some people think the Pope is the Antichrist. Uh, it could also be simply in a generic Antichrist uh, that essentially is somebody who sets themselves up about God. So while um, mentioning that, go ahead and turn for me to 1 John 2. And I'll go there too. So 1 John 2, and if you go to verse 12 and 13, I believe. Oh, I'm sorry, no, it's verse um, 18, actually. If you go to verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. So again, he's talking about time as we know it, that he's living in the last hour, um, that he's living within this last time period, the last days, which we believe to be the ones in which God inaugurated at his resurrection. He says, And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. The Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So basically he's writing to them, just saying, watch out for the Antichrist. Okay, so there's a distinction here that's being made. Everybody agrees that it's the Antichrist. But whether we believe that this is like a capital A Antichrist, or and just another Antichrist of what John's referring to is kind of is up to your interpretation. And again, I think both are valid. I think both are valid. Um, I tend to believe that when it's talking about an Antichrist, it's talking about someone who sets themselves up. I mean, really, I've said probably both sides believe this. It's somebody who sets themselves up as God or against God, that same way that we've seen all throughout the book of Daniel. When we've seen, the ne- when we've seen Nebuchadnezzar ex- uh, exalt himself as God before he finally is turn- his mind's turned to, to one like an animal. Uh, we see Belshazzar do the same thing. Uh, we see Antiochus do the same thing. We see kings throughout history do the same thing, where people believe that because of their power, because of their status, because of their wealth, they are somebody that is equal to God. Um, I've heard, I don't know, I haven't actually looked into this, but for like with the Illuminati, it's like a part of a thing with that too. I don't know if you guys know anything about that. But the point is that all throughout history, there are people who come to power and they set themselves up to be a divine figure. This happened even in World War II with, uh, in Japan with the emperor. And he would ultimately force people to bow down to him as a god, that he was some sort of manifestation. And so the reality is, uh, what I believe is that the Antichrist is somebody ultimately who, who believes that they are the person that should be worshipped, that they have the qualities to do so, and that they will wage war against the people who don't do so. And, uh, and so whether that, this is a capital A Antichrist or a lowercase one, it actually doesn't really matter. The point is that, just as John says in 1 John 2, there have been Antichrists all throughout history. And if another one comes and he sets up this revolt against the people of God in such a specific way that it brings tribulation or suffering, um, that's okay because we have a God who's still in control of it. And so that's what we're beginning to see in verses 36 on. Um, So I'm going to finish it out with verse 40 and onward, and then we'll do some questions. At the time of the end, at the time of the end, so this is the end. Again, I think that this is equivalent as saying the last hour that John's using, okay? 
Um, or the kingdom is at hand, when Jesus begins to say things like that. The king of the south shall attack him. Now again, are we talking about the Ptolemaic kingdom? We don't know at this point. Because so far we have jumped so many decades, so many centuries over this entire chapter that whether we're actually talking about the Greek aspect of things, um, is we think probably not. We think probably not. Okay, um, But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. Now we think that the king of the north is still being equated with um, the Antichrist because Antiochus was a type of Antichrist. He's the kind of person we're talking about. Anybody, the abomination of desolation, who goes in the temple, ransacks it, and desecrates things that are holy, is an antichrist. They're against God. Alright? So, he goes in, he, basically, the north is attacking. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. The glorious land, right? That's Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites... Okay, now, now, here's an interesting part about this. The person, people who are delivered out of his hand, who are they? Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites. Moab, when Daniel, uh, or when Moab at the point of that Anti- Antiochus IV is reigning, it's not even a nation anymore. What, what Daniel's doing is he's pointing out three different nations that have always been enemies of Israel throughout all of Scripture. And they're the ones that are spared. Because they're enemies of God. And the, and the Antichrist, the ultimate enemy of God, is allowing them to live. Okay, so he goes, goes on. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries in the land of Egypt, shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. News from the east and the north. Who are these people? Right? talk about that in a second. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountains. Basically he's saying he's going to set up right in Israel, right in Israel, on the holy mountain, Zion, Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. None to help him. So we believe that ultimately... um, the king of south, the king of the south, and there's a goes to war against the king of the north. The king of the north wins, uh, and ultimately he pardons those people who have come to be the enemies of God throughout Scripture. He pardons those people, and at the final stand, when he is in Israel, he is ultimately um, demolished. The final stand is basically he meets his end because he has no one to help him, no one to help him. And so we believe that the north and the east, um, it could be a lots of different things. Uh, but ultimately, it is absolutely the power of God. And regardless of what people or, you know, whether it's angels, whether it's a nation or whatever, the point is that God ultimately brings an end to the person that sets himself up against him. And when we get to chapter 12, what we'll begin to see is resurrection. Um, this, is, this is specifically Daniel talking about now the very, very end. And so we kind of talked about this even at the beginning of this class. And we talked about it... Um, when we talk about Mark 13, that with, with this prophetic speech, it's often like mountains. You know, you, you're seeing the mountains, but you're not actually seeing the dimensions. You're not seeing how far apart they are from each other. You see a mountain range, it looks very two-dimensional. But when you get up closer, all of a sudden the mountains look farther and farther away. And this is exactly what's going on in chapter 11. Because it spans 486, when Xerxes is that fourth king. Uh, technically, actually, it's before that, if we're talking about Cambyses. 
So it's actually more like 522. But anyways, 522 to all the way to um, 167 when, when Antiochus would fall. And truthfully, this just goes on until God returns and the resurrection takes place. So, all right. Any questions about this thus far? Does this make sense? Do you feel like you understand this chapter better? Has this already happened? Which part? All this fighting from the north and the south. Everything up until verse 36. It's already happened. It's already happened. It's a good question. Yeah. Anything else? Raise your hand if this makes more sense now than it did when you came in. Some of you guys aren't. I want to help here. I want to help. So ask some questions. How can I clear anything up? Yeah. And you may get to it. I would like to see some rollout of the contemporary significance of all this. This is great foundational stuff where the kings came from and all this. But at some point, how does it affect us and Christianity today and how do we, do we respond to this war of the cosmos that was going on then and is going on now? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's saying, how do we apply, how do we apply these... Historical realities, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And I think we've got to have these, these records for information and to, to track all this and yeah. see the realities of it. See how it plays out. But I think that when I read in here was the contemporary significance, and that's what I'm trying to reach for as well as the things we you know who the kings are the kings sure. of the south and all those things yeah and uh, when we see Syria and Iraq and all these things in Christianity and missionaries being played out to this how does this affect us in this day and time and age well I think that's a lot of the, the yeah I'm asking this one thing is how and I'm we've got a grasp of it but yes yeah it does bring Daniel into the present and into what you're doing is into the reality of who we are. Yeah. You're doing a good job of that, yeah. Yeah. So your question is how does this have contemporary significance? Right. And I know, yes. Yeah, I think a lot of that is even just what we're talking about. Daniel setting up this fact that God is with us throughout, you know, every event. I think that really is the significance of that Daniel's hits on that we said, you know, every class, I think God's in control, you know, um, and that... There's going to be a day when God comes, and even when a powerful king sets himself up against him, God will win. God will be the person that puts an end to that king, and that gives us hope. It gives us the promise of resurrection. It gives us truth. It gives us peace, and it gives us the ability to trust God regardless of what circumstance we might be in. Um, I think that that is basically the, the significance of it all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people can add, I think you guys can add to that, too, if there's other things that I'm even missing that bring this into more significance for what for what this text means. But yeah. How else can I clear clean this up, clarify anything? Alright. Well here's the deal guys. This is the most complicated part these these are the most complicated parts of the Bible that we're studying right now. And uh, I mean really they really are. Um, Revelation is a is a close second um, it might be a first, Revelation or Daniel. I don't know. They're probably tied. But the reality is, these are books that have been grappled with 
um, since God gave them to us. Since God gave them to us. And so um, it's, it's certainly been fun to, to go through all this stuff with you guys. I mean, I hope, I, like I said, my goal in this is not to show you how much I know or even probably how much I don't know, uh, but ultimately it's to, to help you begin to see Scripture. If God gave it to us, He wants us to know about it. And every step we can begin to take forward into His truth is another step that we can become made like Him through it. And that's what, that's what I want for you guys as we, as we begin to wrap up this class. So next week will, will be our last class. Um, but um, I've really enjoyed it with you. So next week, it's a short chapter. And so again, we're going to go through some of the themes. And then we'll also, if you have questions, please bring those. Because I want to try to wrap up any loose ends I can. I don't want you to not understand this book. You know? And obviously, I don't have it 100% figured out. But at least to be able to have a, a pretty good grasp on it. So, yeah. Mm. I always thought there was just going to be one Antichrist, but this, this makes sense to me that, that all of these people that were against God were Antichrists. Yeah, for sure. For sure. How do you do time? I guess um, I know he was talking about starting of time. We're working from 500 BC down to 164 or when Christ. Okay, and then we start from there to where we are now. In in terms of this text specifically, time. So the time is specifically related to the people that are involved in the story, essentially. So the the reason that the time is involved is because when Daniel starts to unpack the kings of Persia, that gives us a time frame because we know when those kings probably reigned, and when Daniel finishes uh, with Antiochus the fourth, we know when he died in 164 BC. And it was at that point, you know, that um, the Jews celebrated Hanukkah because they were able to not just revolt, but win and rededicate the temple. And so Antiochus IV dying in 164, that's, when, that's where we get the timeline from. And then in verse 36, when we're looking forward to this person, this Antichrist that sets them up, set themselves up against God, um, th- that is something that's still happening today. So from verse 36 to the end of chapter 11 is something that we're still anticipating. Whereas verse 35 to verse 2 is something that we can actually apply historical, um, our historical knowledge to, if that makes sense. Okay, so they're rebuilding the temple right now, right? I don't think they're rebuilding the temple right now. I think the Muslims have control of the Temple Mount right now, so as far as I'm aware. They're going to rebuild the temple. I think they'd like to, for sure. (laughs) They're going to try to reign from there, correct? There are, the, uh, I will say this, that um, what is talked about through Scripture is every, uh, lots of times when an Antichrist is, is mentioned, that, I mean, if we talk about anybody who sets themselves up against God, especially, I mean, Antiochus being one, um, even when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, these are people that are figures, they are people that are like the Antichrist. So if the, if the temple is destroyed, uh, if the temple is rebuilt, I should say, and destroyed, um, it very well could be um, an Antichrist that does that. For sure. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Anything else I can clear up? Guys, thanks for hanging with me. I know this is a tough one with all the details. So now I know for next time to just give the 30,000 foot view. But um, <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are great. So 
Um, I've enjoyed it. And uh, I would love to pray for you. And then, uh, guys, come back next week and we'll finish out this book and uh, hopefully um, be able to use it. So, and pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to just declare your, your word, your truth. Father, the gospel, knowing that everything, God, that, we, that we're waiting for can actually be had in the person and work of Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we have access to you because of these things. Father, we celebrate that this week as we remember the great cost, the great sacrifice, as we continue to see how it is you're calling us to live in resurrection now. Father, we pray that as we look forward to next week, when we begin to unpack those final moments when all things will be redeemed and restored, where the old order of things will pass away and there will no more be mourning or sickness or or sadness or pain, Father, because you will finally put an end to all those things. Father, we're so thankful, God, that you are so good and gracious, that you're patient, that you're patient with us, uh, knowing, Father, that we, that we are absolutely in need of it as you continue to form our hearts and reshape us. God, we pray that, uh, that when we gather like this as a family, as a community, and uh, just dive into your word more, Father, that we would be encouraged, that uh, we wouldn't get lost in the details, but that we, would be able to do, uh, that we would be able to rest in you, Father, knowing that you are in control. Lord, we love you, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.